So tonight is the last time I'll be giving a talk here at Auckland Insight for a while because I'm planning to go into my own self-retreat for the first three weeks of May. And after that, who knows? Who knows what will be happening in the world, in New Zealand, in our own lives. So tonight is the sixth talk in what's ended up being a kind of series of looking at different ways of responding to the coronavirus situation, or the coronavirus situation, as I've been reframing it. And in New Zealand, at least, as the intensity of the lockdown has been relaxed a bit this week, perhaps it feels like life's returning a bit towards more normalcy. I saw some references to cars and to coffees. So this evening, I thought to do a kind of a review, a short review of this journey that we've been on together. But to leave some time for you to explore that for yourselves in small groups for anybody who'd like to do that. It will be optional and I'll explain the practicalities of that when we get to that point. But first I wanted to just, as I said, review where we've come from. So right back at the start of this year, back in January, I gave a talk on refuge. And as most of you know, in the tradition, people who are following this path of practice are invited to orient themselves to what are known as the three jewels or the three gems by taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma or the teachings, the truth of how things are, and taking refuge in the Sangha or the community of people who are trying to put these teachings into practice. So that's really all of us. Traditionally, Sangha meant the ordained Sangha, but these days it includes anybody who's interested in following this path of practice, cultivating wisdom, compassion, freedom. However, the idea of taking refuge for many people isn't always one that immediately resonates or makes sense. So this definition by Gil Fronstel that I found might offer a couple of ways in. He says, there are two modern meanings of the English word refuge that highlight the value of sarana, the Buddhist word for refuge. The first is a place where people can find safety from danger. The second is an area like a wildlife refuge that's set up to protect animals that are seen as valuable or endangered. In Buddhism, going for refuge includes both these meanings. It's a way of protecting ourselves from danger, as well as safeguarding what's most valuable or beautiful within ourselves. So in some ways, this coronavirus situation has been an enforced time of refuge for many people. And for those of us with some orientation to the Buddhist teachings, these few weeks of relative seclusion have given us an opportunity to really test our practice, to see, is it actually giving me some safety from danger? The danger of being swept away by unskillful or harmful reactions and is it offering a sense of protection to myself, to others? So one of the perverse advantages of 
this situation is that in times of crisis, we get to see our default responses to challenges more clearly, to see perhaps where we might be take, tempted to take what I call false refuge, to take refuge in busyness and overwork or escaping into TV series or getting caught in familiar reactions of anger or blame or guilt or despair. And because of the lockdown situation, we've had both more opportunity to fall into these habits and more opportunity to see them more clearly because of the time, the space, the solitude. We have the opportunity to stay with the immediacy of any afflictive emotions that might come up and to meet them with kindness and compassion. And then from wisdom, choose a different response. And we can see that shift out of unconscious reactivity into more skillful and awake responses as an aspect of taking refuge, taking refuge in what is true, helpful and healing or as Gill said, to protect what is most valuable or beautiful within ourselves. And to the extent that we are able to do that, to that extent, we have the possibility of offering similar benefit to others. And this is where the third refuge, the refuge of Sangha comes in. And it's this that I'd like to focus on a little bit more now. So here in the UK on Monday night, I had an opportunity to practice online with the London Insight Dialogue group. And as many of you know, Insight Dialogue is a form of relational meditation practice where you work with a partner to practice mindful speaking and listening while exploring a Dharma-related topic. And in this particular Monday night session, the facilitators invited us to contemplate how we take refuge in Sangha. And my dyad partner and I spend our time exploring what that word Sangha means in our direct experience. So we were just exploring, investigating, how is the Sangha any different from any other group of people getting together online or in person? And what I realize that whether it's explicit or not, there are some basic shared values that I think are present in a Sangha gathering that provide a sense of trust and safety. So the orientation to non-harming, to being more aware, more conscious, more responsible, and so on, those aren't always necessarily present in any random gathering of people. But in a Sangha, we can have a sense that all of us are doing our best to orient in those directions. So I've been also following the little bit, the writings of a Zen priest, Domio Burke, and I shared some of her reflections last week. This is what she has to say about Sangha. She says, with Sangha, you don't have to explain why you spend your holidays in silent meditation retreats. You don't have to convince fellow Sangha members that lying and cheating are a bad idea. You generally don't have to ask them to value silence. And for the most part, you can count on Sangha members to take responsibility for their own actions and reactions. Such a community creates an environment in which we can relax, 
in which we see practice modeled. We get inspired and challenged to greater aspirations. We feel safe enough to explore vulnerability as we engage the practice deeply, ideally anyway. When Sangha doesn't work this way, she says, then we get to learn from our efforts to heal and take care of Sangha. Because a harmonious Sangha doesn't stay that way without some care and attention. So this is an engaged form of practice. We can't just passively sit back and expect Sangha to magically appear. It happens through all of our co-contributions. And it's this quality of intentionality, I think, that makes a Sangha a Sangha more than just a group of people who are, might be getting together to sit in silence or to study the Buddha's teachings or have a cup of tea and a chat about what's been happening in our life this week. All of those, as you know, are ingredients of our coming together in this group. But without some underlying shared orientation to living ethically and to taking responsibility for our own actions and reactions, without the intention to engage the practice deeply, we're not making the most of what the Buddha was pointing to when he named Sangha as a refuge, as one of the three jewels. So when it's engaged with intentionally, Sangha can act as a support for our collective Samvega. If you remember, Samvega is the quality of spiritual urgency that I spoke about last week. And with this coronavirus situation, it can really help us to awaken to what's truly important. Perhaps kindle a new sense of determination to keep aligning with our deepest aspirations. And in a similar way, coming together regularly as a group helps to strengthen our commitment to waking up. Because as I'm guessing many of you know, without that regular connection, in my own experience, it's very easy to start drifting, coasting, getting complacent, just going with the flow of mainstream life, which, generally speaking, tends to go in the opposite direction of true freedom. So meeting regularly with like-minded people can give us moral support and inspiration from role models. But it's not all sweetness and light. It's also in the relational rub of interacting with others that we get to see our deepest conditioning. Some of you may have been experiencing that in lockdown when you're more closely and more for longer periods of time with people that you're close to. When I was on staff at IMS in the US, the English monk Ajahn Suchito gave a talk to our staff Sangha program about the benefits of living in community. And one of the things he said really stuck with me. He, at some point in the talk, he, he pointed to his shaved head and he said, we need each other because we can't see the backs of our heads. Now, obviously he was speaking on two levels, literally the monks need each other to help shave the backs of their heads because having a well-shaved head is a part of monastic discipline. But on another level, it's also metaphorical that other people can point to the bits of our psyches that are hard 
get to by ourselves. They can see our rough spots, our blind spots, unconscious habits, and perhaps even willful ignorance. So coming back to Domyo, she makes a similar point about how the Sangha is a way of testing ourselves in the crucible of relationships, including our Sangha connection. She says, I like to think the treasure of Sangha is an acknowledgement of the fact that we are social animals. In part, we come to know who we are through our relationships with others. People serve as support, as teachers, friends, and mirrors, helping us see our own behaviors and tendencies. Buddhists also fully admit that people are training opportunities, which means essentially that people tend to irritate one another. A famous Zen analogy compares a bunch of people training together in Sangha as like sharp rocks being thrown against one another in a rock tumbler. Eventually, all the rocks get polished by smashing into each other. Even if we feel we don't need other people in order to awaken, we definitely need other people to test our realization. In Buddhism, it's said, it's easy to be enlightened in a remote cave. We test ourselves within our relationships. And some of the easiest relationships to start practicing with are our Sangha relationships, where at least in theory, we share common aspirations and a language to describe our practice. So there's a lot that we could explore there. And I wanted to, as I said earlier, leave plenty of time to in investigate this in small groups, to use the power of this Sangha right now to connect to our collective wisdom. So for those who would like to, I'm going to invite us to uh, explore in groups of three, just reflecting back over this time, six weeks of relative seclusion, to explore what we learned over this time. What have we learned about ourselves, about our practice in relation to difficulties, about our default reactions to challenges, and what have we learned about the benefits of orienting to true refuge, to Buddha, to Dharma, to Sangha? And how might we keep this learning alive? How might we maintain any sense of samvega, of spiritual urgency, that might have come up in, rela in relation to these challenging times? So that's the invitation. I'll give you those questions again just before we break into groups. And I'll just say a little bit about the process. Some of you might not have done this before. If you choose not to do it, then you can, as I'm setting up the groups, you can disconnect from the meeting for about five minutes and then come back in and simply stay in silence online until the rest of the group joins us. If you would like to, work with partners, then I'll use Zoom to randomly assign you to groups of three, perhaps some of two, depending on the numbers, and then you'll disappear into your own private chat room. When you arrive with your partners, you'll have a couple of minutes just to introduce yourselves, say your name, and then choose the first speaker 
The first speaker will be whoever's name is closest to the beginning of the alphabet. And then the second speaker will be the next closest and so on. Then I will send you a little chat message. It will pop up on your screen, inviting the first person to speak. They'll have five minutes just to reflect while the two listeners offer their silent presence. And then I'll send you another chat when it's time to move to the second speaker and then the third speaker. And then after everyone's spoken, I'll send you another chat inviting you just to contemplate in free flow dialogue without separate speaker and listener. Then at the very end of the small groups, there'll be a message coming up saying you have 60 seconds before the groups return to the main group. So in that 60 seconds, you're invited just to stay with your partners to express any gratitude or appreciation that might have come up. So that's the form. Is that clear for people? Yep. Okay, so this is a point where if you would rather maintain silence, you can just disconnect from the call for a few minutes and then come back in about five minutes. The rest of you, it will take me a couple of minutes now just to set up the call. <laughs> 